Hello, beautiful people. I'm Amy Harry, and with me is Sotonia Odubemi, my co-host. You're listening to Rivers of Unicorns, the hub for tech enthusiasts. We are a virtual accelerator that supports innovative ideas and startups in underserved communities, setting them on a path to exponential growth. We are supported by the Kaywood Brown Foundation and powered by NetOps. Our discussion topic for today is COVID-19, Opportunities in the Chaos, Rethinking Healthcare. Joining us in this discussion are two special guests, so be sure to stay tuned for that. But first off, let's go over our news highlights for today. Over to you, Sotoyen. In the international scene, Balance, the Los Angeles-based online community dedicated to increasing economic opportunity for the Black community, has raised $5.25 million in financing as it looks to continue to expand its network for Black professionals in all fields. Next, Airbnb could file to go public this month. And in the local scene, Nigerians' new broadcasting code ends content exclusivity and raises fine for hate speech. Bus booking platform Plenty Waka raises $300,000 pre-seed funding as it expands to Abuja. And from our cohort, New Heaven Innovation Hub held its first Rivers of Unicorn listening session on Friday, 7th August 2020. That's it for our news update. So I hope you guys are doing great. As I mentioned earlier, our discussion topic for today is COVID-19, Opportunities in the Chaos, Rethinking Healthcare. To join the conversation, you can visit our website, www.reversofunicorns.com, and through our social media handles on Facebook and Twitter. Now, we all know that healthcare workers at the forefront fighting this pandemic. So before we proceed in our discussion, let me take a moment to say a big, big thank you to all healthcare workers out there. You guys are amazing. You're doing a great job and we just hope that God protects you all. During this segment, we are joined by Dr. Insika St. Martins, who is a board certified OBGYN and the founder and CEO of Phoenix Medical Health Center, which is a multi-specialty medical facility in Louisiana, USA. We also have here Lakia Winde, who is a public health enthusiast. Welcome, ladies. Welcome to both of you. Thank you very much. It was my pleasure to be here. Let's jump right in. The health sector in Nigeria is a lifeline for so many. And whilst it's a necessity, in our community river state, one might say that it's plagued by issues such as poor rural access to healthcare facilities due to distance and the local terrain and the proliferation of fake drugs. On the other hand, we have seen a nationwide campaign on healthcare education with respect to COVID-19. What changes have you both seen in healthcare since the beginning of the pandemic lockdown? I'll start with you, Dr. Samartans. Um, guys, thank you so much for having me. It's very exciting for me to be able to share uh, some of my experience with something that's completely brand new. Let's start with the fact that the COVID-19 is a brand new, novel virus. So novel meaning 
never been seen before. We don't know where this is, what this is, where it's coming from, how it works, um, how it doesn't work. Definitely treatment is completely new. Um, with what we're seeing since the beginning of the pandemic, we're seeing um, extreme difficulty in understanding the way everything works with COVID-19 just because of its nature of just being completely brand new. So like anything new and innovative, not to say that COVID is innovative, it's really disrupted a lot of things, right? It's disrupted conventional medical knowledge, it's dis disrupted conventional workspaces, it's disrupted economies, it's disrupted families, it's disrupted communities. So since the beginning of the pandemic, the, the biggest thing for me is what's obvious. Everything has changed. Um, the delivery of healthcare has changed. Um, transportation has changed. Almost every industry has changed. So for me specifically, bringing it home as a, as a physician and also um, as an OBGYN, predominantly focusing on women's care, um, for me, the fact that women's care and access to health care has been severely impacted by lockdowns, stay-at-home orders, things like that, um, and the way it impacts bringing it home again, my specialty, focusing on women's care, is that a lot of the things that we kind of saw as basic have now really become almost um, cornerstone, right? So just having access to your doctor's office for something like refilling your birth control and preventing unintended pregnancy and taking care of simple gynecologic or obstetric issues have now become a huge concern. Today I was reading an article saying that one third of women being interviewed are seriously considering even getting pregnant because of the um, uncertainties with what's going to happen with deliveries. Um, are pregnant women more uh, susceptible to the COVID um, virus and being sick from the COVID virus? We've been seeing all the stories on TV about women that have had to deliver while in a coma um, and only waking up a month or two later to know that child and had a baby. So um, I'm definitely feeling the impact of what this is doing on an individual basis and also on a family basis as far as access to care for women that then translates to their families and then translates to the community. Um, you know, with telehealth, telemedicine, women are now trying to say, okay, do I have to... Um, have to schedule what to do with the children as far as um, having to make your your appointments to see your doctor or have access to your physicians during this time. Um, all of those questions have now become uh, brand new questions because those were not things that we considered prior to um, the start of the pandemic in March. So um, from the healthcare perspective, um, there has definitely been a tremendous change um, as far as just rethinking everything that we even know about conventional medicine and approach to treating um, um, 
common disorders, I think COVID is going to be teaching us a lot more than just taking care of coronavirus. Thank you so much. And Lekia, what have you seen in terms of changes in the public health sector? Yeah, thanks. Thanks, uh, Tsoyi. Um, so, I mean, I do public health and um, I actually do public health currently um, in River State. And so I'm going to try and localize my, uh, my response. Um, as we all know, uh, the, the health sector in Nigeria has been thriving. <laughs> and, and I say that very loosely. You know, it, it's been in crisis for a long time, if we're being honest. And that is, you know, largely due to the fact that, you know, the required level of attention um, hasn't been paid to the sector, you know, to get it to where it needs to be. You know, so we say health is wealth, um, but in a country like Nigeria, where the population is growing by the day, um, it, it literally means we, we kind of have to put the, the naira where our mouth is in order to ensure that the systems are solid enough to be able to cope demands that are placed on it. And, and just to give a bit of context, right, um, overtime funding has been a major issue. Uh, we have over 90% of our population in Nigeria that are uninsured, um, in spite of having a national health insurance scheme. And that, that's been established since 2006. Less than 5% of Nigerians in, in the formal sector are covered by health insurance. And then we have only 3% of people in the informal sector that have any form of voluntary private health insurance. So basically our pocket expenditure is a problem. Now bringing this into the context of COVID, right? Uh, it's basically exposed um, some of the systemic defects that we've had in the health sector. You know, I mean, in the public health world, the truth is the pandemic was always around the corner. Uh, it was just a matter of time. However, no one expected that the blow would be as heavy as the one that, you know, we've been dealt with by COVID on a global scale and particularly in Nigeria. Um, so personally, um, because of work and, and looking at service delivery, we definitely uh, saw a decline in service delivery across board. I mean, you know, the drop in facility attendance, we had both patients and clients patients rather, and, and health workers not going to the facilities because they are scared of contracting a virus. Um, we had cases where patients turned back, especially those that presented with similar symptoms. So we have TB patients not being able to go in to get their medication because you're not coming into my facility coughing up and I'm going to attend to you. Uh, we had people with malaria symptoms not being able to get attention because they're coming with a fever and nobody wants to touch them. And so that was a problem. Um, a significant proportion of the deaths that we saw during COVID were not necessarily as a result of COVID directly, it was indirectly. People not being able to get the, you know, the medical attention that they needed because the pandemic was on and because the health system had been broken uh, by the pandemic, you know. And, and so we, we saw a lot of innovative um, approaches being taken, uh, making the health workforce or the health people, in quotes, to start to think outside the box. So whether that meant, I mean, for example, in the HIV space, uh, we had people being given longer 
um, drugs to cover them for longer because they're not coming to the facility as often. And um, Dr. St. Martin's mentioned uh, uh, a contraceptive, so that was also the case, right? So giving people um, um, what they need for a longer period of time because they can't come into the hospital in and out like they normally would. Um, so yeah, they're definitely where, you know, it, it was a, has been a, a problem. However, I think I, I being on ground, right, I, I want to work for us. Um, and this is clinicians and non-clinicians, you know, who in spite of the inadequacies and the insufficiencies in the health system, we're able to take up the arms and, you know, take the fights um, to push the pandemic as far as possible so that we can continue to see essential health services being provided in spite um, of the pandemic. Thank you so much, Nikia. You both have talked about the ne negative impact, which has been the, the patient's reluctance or kind of in being stopped from attending healthcare facilities, but you've also talked about adapting and how the healthcare system has done this. Um, let's move on to data and testing for COVID. So to our Nigerian context, we know that good quality healthcare facilities and personnel specifically, actually, I would say in River State are usually concentrated in urban areas. So what possible what obstacles have there been, in your opinion, to ensuring that COVID testing is done adequately? And Dr. St. Martins, you can, you can kind of give, give us a perspective of Louisiana if you'd like to weigh in on that. But I'll start off with Lekia. Yeah, so um, testing really has been at the mercy of availability of resources, um, whether it be manpower or so having um, the the adequate number of people that are adequately, um, you know, have the right capacity to be able to conduct these tests. Um, of course, it's a novel virus. Uh, yes, we have lab scientists and the likes, but, you know, um, nobody trained them for COVID-19. So um, just getting getting the right people um, around, I think that that was definitely one thing that, you know, both the states and the country alike had to get in place. And then we talk about equipment and, of course, the consumables that are required. So... You know, for example, we went from having just a handful of labs across the country to now having, you know, over 30, and that number is expanding, right? As of, uh, I think, the 7th of July, um, NCDC, that's the Nigerian Center of Disease Control, um, had reported that we have um, 37 functional COVID-19 test laboratories across um, the 36 states and the federal capital territory. And of course, that number is increasing because we're having private labs that are being accredited uh, for testing, you know, simply in rivers, right? We have, you know, the state-owned labs, we have federal lab in the, in the teaching hospital. And then I'm aware we also have like private labs um, that are also being, you know, doing testing. I think the, the, the benefit that we have seen with, with testing being improved, of course, um, it, it gives hope for reduced turnaround time for results. You know, so, um, I mean, the, the effectiveness of the fight against COVID-19 relies on so many things. But one, it's, it's ability to test, our ability to test quickly enough, our ability to get results quickly enough. And that way we can have, you know, more prompt action, right? Um, to, to, to tackle the effects of the virus. Um, 
So I think initially the obstacle was just um, number one, you know, having the right resources um, to be able to do the testing. I mean, it may still be a problem, um, but definitely we are, I think we are at a better place than we were at the start of the pandemic. Fantastic. And Dr. Martin, just on that one. So as far as COVID testing is concerned, I think that um, COVID-19 is a great equalizer. Um, So you're talking about what's going on in River State, and it's very akin to what's also going on here in the United States, and particularly here in Louisiana, what we're having, I think, about the highest per capita um, positive COVID-19 tests. So um, like Lekia said, the problem with the testing um, is the fact that there is also a very, very long turnaround result rate. So when you're waiting four days to seven days for test results, uh, what, do you, what are you doing with that patient in four, four to seven days while you're waiting for the test result? And then also because, like she said, um, also the um, fact that COVID-19 is a novel virus, you would also understand that um, the testing itself is also a new test. So with every new test that hasn't been tried and tested by time, um, will be plagued with a lot of of false positives or false negatives. Um, And so sometimes that can can also be a problem that um, with the testing. And so now when you talk about testing certain populations like probably back at home where access can be an issue, manpower and resources can be an issue and the actual test um, quantity can be an issue. You then add on top of all of that, the fact that you're dealing with a novel test with extreme, you know, depending on who is testing, what lab you're using, what kind of uniformity are you getting with your test results and also test turnaround um, rate. When you, when you kind of compound all of that together, it really presents more of a very um, unique situation as far as what to do with COVID testing. Should we even even test at all? Or should we even just go ahead and just take care of the patients instead of taking care of a test result that is compounded and plagued by all of these issues? So um, it's very interesting to see that um, whether you were talking about testing issues or testing access in places at home, River State or here in Louisiana, seems to be the same um, um, obstacles that we're, we're kind of facing and uh, facing together. Thank you. Okay, so quickly thinking ahead, right, past COVID and all, what other things we'd like to see in the Nigerian healthcare sector? We had technology, concerned, people's participation. Can you guys throw some light on that? That is a, an interesting question. I, I had an opportunity to come back home last year after over 13 or 14 years being away. Um, being in the U.S. and I came back for a medical mission with a group that came to, went to a Qui-Gon State to do surgeries and things like that uh, for about a week. And of course, the first thing that struck me was infrastructure. There is no way we can be talking about COVID testing and we don't have a decent place to, to even go get the test. Can't be talking about COVID testing 
and what to do with COVID testing when they don't have running water in a hospital or what is called the hospital. Um, so I, maybe it was what my experience was and where I had to go to because another thing I heard about, you know, 24 hours and 48 hours and two years was you're, you're just, you know, in more in a rural area. If you were a little bit in the urban area, you experience, you're going to see what if. And again, that hit me again, infrastructure. But why should it be different? Why can't we bridge that gap? Where this is the rural areas where it needs the help, but you're taking the hospitals with the running water to a place that doesn't probably need it as much. So... Um, infrastructure, 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 I think for me is what we needed. Thank you. Lakia? Yeah, I'll write on that. I'll write on that and, and just say we, we need to actually start to close the, the funding gap. You know, in, in, in 2001, there was this um, meeting, right? Uh, heads of state of uh, African Union countries came together um, in, in Abuja, actually. And they all made a pledge to set its target. Um, to allocate at least 15% of their annual budget uh, to improve the health sector. It was called the Abuja Declaration. There was pump about it. And unfortunately, since then, um, Nigeria's budget for health has lingered below 10%. And that's on paper. What actually translates into reality is even poorer. And it's, you know, it's poorer and poorer the lower you get to. And I think that that's what Dr. Sim Martins is talking about, because when you go closer to the people who actually need the services, you would realize that, you know, they're not getting even a fraction of what they should get if um, we were able to put our money to good use. You know, um, the Bible says money answereth all things, and that is simply the truth. We need to be able to coordinate our use of funds. We have development partners in Nigeria, working across state, across different programs, we have, I mean, the government alone, right, has sufficient funds if, if we're put to good use into strengthening the health system. And I'm not talking about um, filling holes temporarily. I'm not talking about parallel, um, you know, um, um, funding and, and things like that. I'm, I'm talking about fixing systemic issues, looking at human resource health. Do we have available health workers? And the health workers that we have, I mean, do we have a health workers, first of all, that is sufficient? Do they have the right capacity, right, to provide the services that the people need? And then the infrastructural deficit, uh, I mean, I don't even want to go into it. Power supply is the problem. Um, we have huge equipment gaps you know, and, and, and all of that. So we really need to look into strength, um, strengthening our health system, strengthening our, our local economy. Can we, can we see how we can produce um, and some of the equipments that we use, the drugs that we need in our, in our health centers? Can we provide those, right? And then primary health care, which is taking it to the communities, integrated service delivery. I mean, I could go on and on and on and on, but yeah. <laughs> There is a lot to be done, definitely. Thank you. Thank you for that. Okay, so quickly, this show is called Reverse of Unicorns, and a unicorn is a company that has over $1 billion in revenue, or what. So which unicorn would you like to be, and why? Likia, you can start first. Okay, so Oscar Health, um, I think they are valued at $3.2 billion. 
So of course, being a health enthusiast, I went for them. They're a health maintenance organization, um, and they're basically servicing individuals, families, organizations, uh, custom, with customized and comprehensive health insurance packages. Um, I've talked about the health insurance issues in Nigeria, so of course, um, seeing an organization like this doing that is great. Um, they're using technology, which is futuristic, it's exciting, it's well-placed in a world like ours. Yeah, that's mine. <laughs> Dr. Isika. Okay, I would choose Smile Direct Club. They are valued at about $4 billion. Um, I like the fact that they uh, are a teledental that are transforming smiles all over the world from the comfort of your home. Awesome, thank you. All right, so we have an awesome book review, which I am going to leave to Satoya to give you the book review. So the book I'm reviewing this week is called The Lean Startup. How to today's entrepreneurs use continuous innovation to create radically successful businesses. It's written by Eric Ries, a tech entrepreneur who started the Lean Business Methodology Movement. And we can see that Dr. Tim Martin has read it because she got really excited <laughs> <laughs> about it. Um, so here's what I'll say about the book. Um, in the book, Eric outlines the premise for startup growth. Think big, act small, fail fast, learn quickly. And it basically functions on three principles. One, the business model canvas, how your company creates value for itself and its customers. Two, customer development, finding out what your customer needs. And three, agile development, building your product in stages based on your customer needs. So we'll discuss this in a future episode, but till then, like Dr. St. Martin, read the book. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you both for joining us today. It's been fantastic. Yes, thank, thank you. you. Thank you.